This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture Card. Earn unlimited 2x miles on every purchase. Plus, earn unlimited 5x miles on hotels and rental cars booked through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. You might know Nick Kroll from his very raunchy animated show on Netflix, Big Mouth. Are you the puberty fairy? The puberty fairy? I'm the hormone monster. I'm not a fairy. Well, now he's starring as a romantic lead in a movie set at the Olympics. Actor and comedian Nick Kroll, next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. As an old history teacher of mine used to say, there is really nothing new under the sun. That was his way of saying that if we study history, there is plenty to learn from the past that can instruct the present. On this special podcast extra this week, we're going to take a trip into the past for an examination of a little-known bit of history that sheds light on the Latino experience today. I recently did an interview with historian Jesse Hoffman Garskup. He wrote a fascinating book called Racial Migrations, New York City, and the Racial Politics of the Spanish Caribbean. It's a gripping read about Afro-Latino migrants to the U.S. who, in the late 19th century, organized to overthrow a colonial monarchy, eliminate slavery, and organized the Spanish Caribbean while living in New York and Florida. And I make that statement about history because there are echoes of events that are in the headlines today. I'm thinking about the demonstrations last summer in Puerto Rico, as well as demonstrations that took place recently in the Dominican Republic that also speak to the themes of the book. And because Jesse Hoffman Garskopf is such a thorough historian, he was kind enough to bring in some very rare recordings of music to reflect the same time period we're talking about, which we'll hear during our talk. I want to remind our listeners that this week's show is a conversation. We'll hear some music, but very little. Mostly, we'd like you to listen in and let the ideas and history percolate. As they say in TV, let's go to the tape of our chat before a live audience on the campus of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. The first thing I asked him was to explain the historical arc of the book. Right, so the book is it's set in the last half of the, of the 19th century, and it's about a group of migrants from Puerto Rico and Cuba, which at the time that they migrated were both still Spanish colonies, about their experience of migration to the United States and then their involvement in radical politics, revolutionary politics. And they, that would include revolutionary politics against colonialism in Spain, but also uh, politics of, of social equality, especially racial equality. And what's really interesting about this group of migrants, in addition to everything else I've said, is that they're also all descended from Africa. They're all Afro-descended people. So they grew up in a variety of societies, the main characters of the, of the story hailed from Cuba, from Puerto Rico, uh, and then also from the Cuban emigre colony in Key West. And the b- book really opens up in the 1850s asking, how does a person born in one of these societies, those are three societies that are all at the height of, of slavery, of racial slavery mm-hmm. uh, in the 1850s, how does a person of African descent grow up to become a person who can remake themselves in, and, and achieve some social mobility? And then particularly, how do they end up having aspirations and careers that allow them to become literary figures and journalists? So it starts in the 1850s in those multiple places, uh, and then it moves with them to the United States, to South Florida, and then eventually to New York. And by the 1870s and 1880s, the, the question changes, what is it like to be a black migrant in New York City in the late 19th century, at the time when New York was the whitest that it ever had been and ever would be. Uh, it's, a, it's a city that's really, really heavily shaped by 
European culture, and they find their way there and then have to figure out what it means to be a migrant and what it means to be black in that society. And then the third part of it is about how they create community in, in the context of migrating to New York and experiencing the racial politics and the racial exclusions of the late 19th century in the United States. They create community and then out of that community they create a revolution. That revolution they make alongside a really famous uh, Latino New Yorker, Jose Marti, who becomes the leader of a movement in which they are the principal organizers in New York, a movement for independence from Spain. I think that's something that uh, most people don't think about when they think about that time period, the idea of immigrant black, as opposed to the people who were, who were brought here, uh, not on their own, involuntarily. And I think that for the purpose of conversation, I think we should have a little discussion about the time period. Sure. And, and I wrote down some notes because I think that there won't be a quiz, but I do have to go over some of these dates, okay? We're talking about the end of slavery, and here in the United States, that was 1865, in Puerto Rico, 1873, and in Cuba, 1886. And it's also, this story also unfolds within the context of, of a couple of three different armed conflicts. The, the U.S. Civil War, which was 1861 to 1865, the Cuban War of Independence, which was 1895 to 1898, and the Spanish-American War, uh, which involved Puerto Rico, 1898 to 1901. And that's also set against the backdrop of Reconstruction here in the United States, 1863-1877. You're giving these, um, telling these fascinating stories about specific individuals, but I think what, what is most fascinating to me is the level of advanced thought about freedom, about emancipation, about nationalism, about all these things that I think that most people wouldn't think that that was going on at the time among these people within this community. Is that well-documented? Is it something that's part of a, a documented part of history? Yeah, I think um, colleagues here and colleagues at other universities in the United States have been really, have really worked on the quest, that question for the United States, right? The, the, the really remarkable experience of interracial democracy at the end of the Civil War, and it can be easy to forget because of how thing, bad things got by the, by the end of the 19th century for black citizenship in the United States, mm -hmm. but that there was a real, real radical movement, uh, interracial movement for full democracy for men, because women, weren't, women of any race weren't, were not able to vote at the time, um, that produced a lot of really incredible thought as well as a lot of uh, really creative political mobilization. And, and, and there is also really good historical work preceding mine, which I rely very heavily on, about the history of the black civil rights movement and black participation in nationalism in Cuba, relatively less in Puerto Rico. One of the questions that I had was, what's the experience of people who move back and forth among these different places? Because if you think about the end of slavery, it's, it's really interesting to think about, uh, comparatively about both the timing, it happens a lot later in Cuba than it does in, in the United States, mm -hmm. but also the terms. So is there a war that ends slavery? Does slavery end as a result of a, of a, a proclamation by a colonial power? Is it as a result of a de democratic movement? And then once slavery is over, what are the strategies that former slave holders, for, former enslavers, and the government have for trying to control the labor of the people who were formerly enslaved, right? Because it's typically done in a context in which the people who are in control of society don't want to give up the access to that labor and oftentimes don't really want to give full access to citizenship. So those negotiations are happening differently in those three different places, and this group of people moves around among them, and that's how I think, that my, my impression is that's how they get so sophisticated, because they are comparative sociologists. You, you get off a ship and you get into a new society and you gotta figure out how race is working in that society. It gives you a real good idea that race is a social construct and race is, is something that's really powerful but also something that is kinda 
it's really different in different places. When we talk about social context, um, one of the places that this uh, takes place is cigar factories. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so you, you asked the question of how people become so sophisticated um, when they're, you know, the, all the, the central characters in, the, in, the, in this work are writers and readers and poets and journalists and musicians, but they, they earn their bread as, as wage workers. Um, and one of the places that many, many of them earn their bread are, are in cigar factories. And it's, it's, it's actually not that surprising because you think about Cuba and you think about cigars in terms of what Cuba provides the world market. Uh, and the period of the late 19th century is a period where there's big urban populations all around the world, and a lot of them are smoking cigars. Sure. And Cuban cigars become really a famous kind of high-priced commodity. By the you know 1860s, you've got 15,000 cigar factory workers in the city of Havana, and of those, at least half, but probably more, are of African descent. And so it, that becomes one of the places where it's possible to earn a living, uh, not always a great living, but a, a better living than working cutting cane on, the, on, the, on, the, on a plantation. Sure. Um, but what's really cool about those places is that by the 1860s, they develop a culture of reading. So it's a quiet factory because just, it's just rolling. Those of you who have rolled a cigarette or a joint, you know what rolling sounds like. It doesn't sound like much. And you can have a 1,000 people rolling. It's not going to make much noise compared to many factories. And so they use the fact that it's silent to chip in, and they pay one of the co-workers to spend the day reading to them. So you're not going to be able to roll any cigars today. You're not going to have the wages. But we'll all chip in part of our wages, and we'll pay you out. And today, it's going to be your turn. You read the newspaper, read novels, and then read social philosophy. And actually, there's a lot of concern by the government that they're going to start reading <laughs> too much, and they're going to get too many ideas. And in fact, that is what happens. They become really, really sharp social thinkers because they're sitting there 10 hours a day listening to to everything from Darwin to Dickens to the anarchist thinkers from, from Russia and from France. So they're, I mean, that's one of the answers to how they become so sophisticated in their thought. You know, we did a whole show probably three, four years ago. One of the other things that came out of that reading was telenovelas, you know, because that's, that's the root of the telenovela in Latin America is they would read the drama, right, the, the literature. And so that is the basis for, because there's a sociologist, a sociologist down in the uh, Atlanta area. We had her on the show. And I had no idea. It was a fascinating aspect of that. But it's interesting that it's connected to this. It's a little bit of entertainment, but also a little bit of this sophisticated learning going on at the same time. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the other set of workers that get very involved in this, the other context, are the print workers. And there, there you again, it's a situation in which people are, you don't, to become a print worker, you don't necessarily have to go to, a secondary school, you, you have to know how to read and write. Um, but then once you're working in the print shop, what well, your job is is to, to set type. You know, you, you take little pieces of lead that have the shape of the backwards of, of letters mm -hmm. and you put them in order and you're, in, as a result, you're in contact with ideas all day. You're, you're sitting, sometimes the ideas aren't that great, but sometimes they are and sometimes you're, you're rubbing elbows with some of the great thinkers and writers of, of, the, of the era that you're living in. Um, and so it's not, it's really common for the print workers in this story to then start thinking, well, maybe I should try in my hand at writing. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I have access to a printing press, right? right? So my friend, the cigar worker who writes something, I know how to get it together, you know? So they, the, the, the combination of the readers and the cigar factories and the, and the, the guys who know how to, how to set type, they, when they want to put together a newspaper, you know, there's no desktop publishing, but there is old-fashioned <laughs> publishing, and if right. you can get some paper and some ink, I've got, I've got a, a printing press and we can put this out. Before we take a music break, because it is all Latino, that's what we do. Uh, talked a little bit about 
the three central figures in this story and this organization, this place where they meet? The main figures are a cigar worker from Havana named Rafael Serra, uh, who later in his life, after being in New York for, for the better part of his adult life, went back to Cuba in, when Cuba was nominally independent after the war and was elected to the House of Representatives in Cuba. So he was one of the most successful black politicians in, in, in really in Cuban history, but in that period of Cuba. Uh, and he lived in New York and uh, for a period of about 20 years. Um, so he's one of the main figures. Uh, and then another one of the main figures is his wife, Gertrudez Heredia, who was a midwife from Matanzas, Cuba, which is a smaller city not so far from Havana and who was, I argue, central to the formation of, of the migrant community. She and other midwives were really important in, in providing primary health care, but also in, in, in organizing the social labor of reproducing the, the I'm sorry, I went, I went professor on you. Yes, in organizing the work of... I forgot of, to give of, you the signal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> in organizing the work of households and of getting food together and of taking care of kids and of making sure people were healthy. And as a result, ended up actually becoming a political figure in her own right. Um, and then Sotero Figueroa was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and he was one of the print workers. He, he had a basic primary education, and then he became an apprentice in a print shop that happened to be owned by one of the leading white liberal thinkers of the time. And in that context, he found mentors who helped support him as he became an expert typographer, but also a journalist and a poet. And by the time he was in his 20s, he was trying to do everything, you know, trying to both, trying to put on his own newspaper, writing plays, collaborated with a really important local musician to write a zarzuela, uh, Juan Morel Campos. Uh, and then he moved to New York in the 1880s and became really really tight with Jose Marti. And he was the guy who actually typeset all of the things that Marti wrote in New York in the, in the, at the end of the, of the 19th century. And then I guess I, I'm counting a fourth. There's the fourth principle of, uh, in, in the book is Juan Bonilla, who was actually born in the United States because his parents migrated pretty early to uh, South Florida, to the community in Key West, where there were thousands and thousands of cigar workers. And so Juan Bonilla was born there, and so he actually grew up in the U.S. South in the period of Reconstruction. He, he was Spanish speaker, uh, a black man, um, but he also grew up in a, in a town where there, this experience of kind of this radical, you know, uh, a multiracial democracy was going on while he was a, 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 a boy and a teenager all around him. And there were really important black, African-American black intellectuals and activists and, and school teachers in the neighborhoods that he was living in, along with the, all the Cubans. Yeah, we're going to talk about that, that intermingling of cultures and societies in a second. But let's take a music break. As I mentioned, you pulled out a handful of songs that we can use to illustrate the time and the period. Tell us what we're going to hear right now. So there are not actual recordings from the late 19th century, but there are recordings that we have access to from the early 20th century that, that we know. I mean, it pro music probably changed a little bit between them, but we know more or less it's, it's pretty close. And these are really cool because they were actually recorded on wax cylinders. So this is a, a danza, a Puerto Rican song style that was really important in the late 19th century. And this one is called La Borinquena. It has a nationalist lyric. And it was written by Eugenio Astol, who was an, a Spanish-born actor and musician. And what's cool about it is that he was actually in the play that Sotero Figueroa wrote. Like, he, he played the leading, the, the title character in that play. And then Figueroa and Juan Morel Campos put a song that he wrote in as the final song. And it was kind of subversive because the whole play was poking fun at the conservative uh, mayor of a small town. 
um, which wasn't, you know, it was, it was kind of poking fun at Spanish government in, in a moment of Spanish colonialism when it wasn't safe to do that. And then they end with this nationalist theme. So they were really kind of poking their finger in the eye of the, of the local officials. And so Figueroa ended up in jail a couple times as a result of that eye poking. What's striking about this music is, is the lack of African influence mm. and the heavy dose of the stringed instruments, the Spanish, uh, the choral arrangements. Even though we're talking about a, a, an Afro-Latino community at the time, this was the popular music at the time. And it shows that how, you know, with the stringed instruments, later on how some of that stuff was adapted in Puerto Rico with, with the uh, traditional instruments like the cuatro and things like that. Yeah. I mean, I think that in part it's just a, it's, it's because it's the luck of the, who got recorded, right? When they recorded this in New York, it was a band, I think, that had been doing some folkloric stuff. And, and so really heavily, instru- the instrumentation is more in that direction. I think if you actually went back to Ponce in 1887, you would have had Juan Morel Campos playing like the euphonium mm-hmm. and doing a real syncopated bass line with that. So... There was actually a lot of concern among white intellectuals in Puerto Rico about how African the danza was at that point. Um, and, I, and I wonder whether this recording, both because of the recording technology, which might not have picked up some stuff, so they, they simplified the instrumentation, but also possibly just because of the way that this particular band was interpreting it, would underplay some of that African side. At least that's the way I imagine it. The other thing that strikes me is the idea that something that you wrote in the book you don't want to move your hips because that would be too black, right? Well, yeah, I guess it, that the interesting thing about both Puerto Rico and, and Cuba at this point is that both have really very widespread participation by Afro-descendant people in the musical industry, right? That the, the emerging popular music industry, many, many of the, of the, of the musicians are of African descent, if not most. Mm-hmm. Um, because traditionally that had been a manual occupation that was open to free black people and actually even to enslaved black people. And there's all this amazing African origin music in spiritual practice, mm-hmm. in, in communal organizations uh, that are you know, Af- ethnically African. And the people who are playing in one context play in the other context. So they bring a lot of that information, a lot of that musical sensibility into the way they play what's basically European dance music, like right. danza o danzón. And then there's all this concern about that on the part of intellectuals, right? They're really worried because every time you go into the newspaper and say, you should stop dancing danzón, it's bewitching, and, and it's, 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 way, it's way too voluptuous. It's not clear whether what you're doing is really warning people against it or advertising it to people, because that, that's the very thing that actually draws people to the music. That's what happened with rock and roll. <laughs> exactly. Right? I mean, that's exactly what happened with rock and roll. Um, so bo- in both contexts, and I, one of the things that I think is really interesting is that dynamic. If you're a person who has come up as a free black person in a society that's highly racist, 
and where racism overlaps with ideas about sexuality and ideas about you know, proper behavior, what do you do when the music from your vernacular community becomes popular, uh, even with white people, but then also evokes this kind of reaction? Like, do you need to dis disavow the music in order to be respectable, or can you celebrate it as something that's a, a kind of a victory for mm -hmm. a, a move towards a more just society. And I, I see the, these intellectuals, they really struggle with that because they're trying to articulate a, a, an argument that, that black people have a right to be, participate in politics. And they find that even the celebration of black musical styles doesn't necessarily lend itself towards a vision, at least in the 19th century view, of people who are capable of politics. On the one hand, musicians like Morel Campos and, and Valenzuela, they're involved in the black civil rights movement. They're, they're playing gigs to, to raise money for black organizations and for revolutionary organizations. On the other hand, those organizations feel really uncomfortable about the fact that all of a sudden white men start showing up at the dances right. looking for dance partners. And is that really what they want to be? Is that really how they want to be understood, these organizations, as being basically places for a certain kind of interracial sociability that, that focuses on the attractiveness of black music and, and, and black women. Mm -hmm. You are listening to Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. We're here on the campus of uh, University of Michigan. And uh, let me ask you, let's take a look, a couple, of, I didn't tell you I was gonna do this, let's take a little bit of time to talk about you, <laughs> okay? Where did this interest in the subject come from? This is my second book. I'm, I've been a historian for about 20 years now. And they're both actually, both of my books are about Spanish-speaking Caribbean people migrating to New York and how that transforms New York, but also transforms the societies that they come from. Um, and the interest really came out of an experience that I had after I was finished with college, but before I went to graduate school to become a professional historian. I was working as a social worker in an immigrant neighborhood in New York. Um, and as part of the job that I was doing, I was, I was asked to do a lot of writing about the neighborhood. And I, I really, I found it really interesting to, to try and think about how to express what I was seeing in an immigrant neighborhood, given what I thought I knew about the history of immigration in the United States, because my grandparents were immigrants. And I, I sort of had this idea that, you know, immigrants came to the United States and left behind the places that they, that they had been in before. Um, uh, and that you kind of never looked back. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that that, probably was never true. <laughs> it just maybe was the vision of a, of a grandson of immigrants, um, but it certainly wasn't true about, about immigrant New York in the, in the 20, late 20th and early 21st century. So I got involved in, in that and I went to graduate school to become, I, I had this idea that I could be a Caribbean historian who, who looked at the city of New York and migration to the United States from the perspective of Caribbean history. So this project in particular, I got really interested in, again, about 15 or 20 years ago, I, I, I came across a, one of the first people who ends up being a minor character in this book, but was the person who really drew me in, was Arturo Schomburg, who was a member of this community. He was, a, he was also a print worker from San Juan. He was also a ma uh, you know, man of African partial African descent. He came to New York in the 1890s. He got involved with Jose Marti and with the movement and with Serra and Figueroa. And then he stayed. When a lot of them went back, he stayed, and he became a really important black intellectual as part of the Harlem Renaissance and a collector of history. And I became interested in how he had made that transition from being a Cuban and Puerto Rican nationalist revolutionary to being a, a, a black intellectual. And it was in kind of poking around to try and figure out how to make sense of that that I realized, in fact, most of them had already been black intellectuals before they became Caribbean revolutionaries, that those two things happened simultaneously. Do you think that there is something there for the general public to be able to, because this is a little, this is a little known slice of uh, history. I mean, you're shining a light on something that I don't think uh, very many people are hip to, uh, just in general. 
I like to say that, you know, if you like Hamilton, then you're going to love this book. There you go. <laughs> right? That's, so, the, that's the book blurb. Yeah, okay. right. <laughs> um, because it's clear that there is an interest in the general public in trying to think about history in, in ways that connect with the, the contemporary remaking of society, and particularly in New York City history. How do you think about the past of New York when you know that New York is such a center of both African-American and Latino politics and cultural life and movements, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really interesting that Hamilton, you know, accomplishes that by kind of reimagining the Founding Fathers as if they were African-American and Latino. Um, but actually there was a group of revolutionaries who went around the city fighting for freedom from a colonial power to end slavery and did a lot of music too. Mm -hmm. um, it was just a hundred years later than the story in Hamilton and there are these real figures who are really, I mean, to me, to my mind, very compelling. I appreciate that it, that it felt compelling to you, but I, I feel like part of the, the trick, but also maybe the, the tightrope to walk is that you, you, you have to both fall in love with, your, with your, the characters, but also not fall in love with them too much, <laughs> right? Because right? you have to also yeah. see their flaws and try and figure out the things that you, that you need to understand about them that are not the things that, things that necessarily would make sense to you in your own life. So Lin-Manuel Miranda, if you're out there listening to all Latino, we got some new stuff for you, man. <laughs> At about the same time all of these revolutionary activities were happening in New York and Florida, there was also a musical revolution happening between the U.S. and the Spanish Caribbean. As we've discussed many times here on Alt Latino, there was a vast cultural give and take between the U.S. and Cuba, specifically between New Orleans and Havana. And in this bit of archival audio, Professor Hoffman Garscuff presents pianist Jelly Roll Morton, a New Orleans musician who was part of the earliest days of the music that became jazz. He explains how Afro-Caribbean rhythms influenced the music of New Orleans. Of course, you got to have these little tinges of Spanish in it uh, in order to play real good jazz. Uh, jazz has a foundation that must be very prominent, especially with the bass sections in order to give a great background, uh, plus what's called riffs today, uh, which was known as figures, but figures has, hasn't always been in the dance bands. I'll give you an idea what uh, the, the idea of Spanish there is in the blues. makes it funky at the end, <laughs> right? Quite 
clear to you, the only one is the blues. The differentiating in these things, it comes from the right hand. You play the left hand just the same, but of course, blues, you, you, you get some syncopation in it. It gives it an entirely different color. It really changes the color from red to blue. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I love that, 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 that clip. I teach with it all the time. I mean, I think one of the things, a couple things. One is he actually plays a, a specific song, La Paloma, which was a, a, a contradanza habanera, like a Havana-style contradance from the 1840s, right? So it's been a hit for, by the time he's playing it, it's been like 80 years since it was written, and it first circulated just for musicians and sheet music because there were no recordings yet. And what it has is that strong left-hand syncopation, dun, da da Dun, dun. You know, just like the 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 habanera from from Carmen, right? Mm-hmm. The, the that 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 rhythm in the left hand is what he's saying. That's the Spanish tinge, right? And he's saying the Spanish tinge. That's the syncopated bass line, which on piano will be the left hand. Um, so I, I find that to be really helpful because then you know when you go back and listen, you can be listening for something specific that he says is fundamental to the origins of ragtime and jazz. Um, the other thing that I think is really amazing about that, from my perspective for this story, is that the Cubans in New York were doing music, and of course African Americans in New York were doing music too, and from as early as, the, as around 1881, 1882, they start getting together to do music together. And, and the, the community of people who later do the politics around Jose Marti, the Afro-Cuban or African-descended Cuban and, and Puerto Rican migrants, they start gathering together for summer picnics and dances alongside African Americans to raise money for every endeavor that they ever do. They're always, they're always doing music. Uh, and, and I ask myself, I can't answer the question, what, what's the music sound like, right? Does it sound like a danzón? Does it sound like ragtime? Is it something in between? But what I think it is, is that thing that Jelly Roll Morton's talking about. It's talking about music, you know, jazz doesn't really ever exist before it has contact with Cuban music. But that contact is fundamental to the origins of both sets of music. And I think it's, kind of amazing that it was happening in the same place as the revolution that Jose Armaiti led and, and that the central character in my book really organized against Spanish rule and, and in favor of freedom. Yeah, the music's always part of the scene. And you, and you fast forward 60 years or from the first part of the uh, 19th, 20th century into the 1960s, 64, 63, with uh, the development of Boogaloo, right? Which is, yeah. you know, R&B and Afro-Caribbean mixed together for a very short period of time. It, it, because the African-American and the Afro-Caribbean communities were living together side by side, rubbing shoulders in, in, in New York at the time. Yeah, and you can cut that time in half and think about 1947 and Manteca and having Chano Pozo teach Dizzy Gillespie how to syncopate the bass line, yeah. right? Yeah. do 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 <laughs> right? Yeah, um, and and you know, and it's interesting because you 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 could you could pull out a, a interview of Dizzy Gillespie talking about that process too. Yeah, that sounds just exactly like what Jelly Roll Morton's talking about. You know, the 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 Spanish tinge is the syncopated bass line in the jazz in the jazz repertoire. That's a subject for another show. Yeah, man. We're gonna, we could do that. We could go into that on our own. Okay, let's wrap this up. In the context of what we're experiencing here in the United States right now, the general nastiness of the last three, four years. What kind of lessons can we draw from the characters and the stories in your book that will help us either make sense or cope? 
This yeah. is the question I wasn't going to tell you yeah. about. No, that's a tough question. So, I mean, it's really interesting because we haven't gotten into this, but one of the things that's really interesting about the political formations that they did create in the late 1890s was that they were very strongly inflected by a vision of sort of superseding race, of getting beyond race, of creating coalitions in which everybody could just be Cuban or everybody could just be Puerto Rican. Um, and I started, and, and that's, a, that's a, a vision of racial overcoming and that has real limitations in my view, right? That, it, that is, it can be used and it was used in Cuba and Puerto Rico to try and silence people from talking about real racism that they were facing because to, to mention race was the problem. And I started the project in a period when President Obama was the president yeah. and when people were saying similar kinds of things here, right? Like we've, we've overcome race, there is no race anymore. And so I really started the project thinking about what history could tell us about that kind of politics. What were the, what were the things that that kind of politics allowed and what, what were the things that that kind of politics might be problematic? You know, why might it be problematic? But then I ended the project in a moment when, when like you say, the White House is occupied by people who are openly espoused white nationalism, who think of, who, who think of, of race as a fundamental barrier to human, to human belonging. Um, and you realize, again, that the backdrop against which these characters created that politics of racial overcoming was a background very similar, right? There were presidents, there were people in the White House, there were people in universities, including this university, who strongly believed that whiteness was a sine qua non. I just went professor. That whiteness was essential <laughs> to, being, to, to being a human being in a way that, you know, and, that, and, and there were people in the politics in the, US, in the United States and in Cuba and Puerto Rico who wanted to line up whiteness with power in every, in every way and wanted to basically totally disenfranchise people who are not white. And so it, it, it's been interesting to, to kind of follow that through and to, to get a, a new and different understanding of what I still think is not a perfect, but it's a limited politics of like, we, what we need to do is just forget about race, but to understand that they made the choice to join that politics against the backdrop where the alternative was open white supremacy. As an armchair historian, you know, I always look for lessons, especially now, doing a lot, reading a lot more history now uh, to try to understand and to cope. And the topic and the stories and the lessons from your book are incredibly helpful and I encourage anyone who's listening to go out and buy the book and, and learn a little bit about this because it's enlightening and, and it helps, man, it helps a lot. So thank you for uh, doing this chat with us today. Oh, thank you so much. My thanks to Professor Jesse Hoffman-Garskoff for taking the time to host Out Latino on the campus of the University of Michigan to talk about his book, Racial Migrations, New York City, and the Racial Politics of the Spanish Caribbean. A special thanks to Lynette Clemenson for her help in making this happen. This show is part of our special programming during Black History Month. The month isn't over yet, so there's more content to come your way. This has been NPR Music's Alt Latino I'm Felix Contreras. Thank you for listening. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.
Summer is for going to the movie theater because it's too hot to stay home. It's for driving with the windows down, listening to your favorite music. It's for stretching out while you're on vacation to gobble up a TV show. For a guide to some of the TV, movies, and music we are most excited about this summer, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR.